Good morning, everyone. Welcome to our Friday sessions. Uh, uh, sadly, Dr. Shriver is, for us, sadly, he's not here today. Uh, happily for him and his wife, uh, he is in Maryland visiting his grandchildren, which he hadn't seen, I think, in about eight months, maybe even longer because of the pandemic. So, so John, hopefully you're not logging in and you're actually playing with your grandchildren. But if you are, welcome. Uh, we, we miss you here. And, and of course, then, so I now have to do this uh, first session. So I've, there's no way I'm going to meet uh, John's high standards and, uh, and great presentations, uh, but I, he'll be back two weeks from now. I think next week is uh, Good Friday, so we're going to take off for a week, and then we'll come back the week after. But we do have a grand round speaker on Tuesday. Uh, today we have uh, a, a short update from me. I'm going to focus on the epidemiology, uh, something about the variant strains that are circulating, a little bit of the resurgence in Connecticut. And then we have an outstanding guest and speaker uh, from Yale, who's going to, uh, Dr. Ferrante, who's going to speak to us about the long haul syndrome, which uh, she has been seeing in adults. And so we'll get a firsthand experience uh, of what happens to uh, adults who have had COVID-19 in the recovery phase, which is uh, certainly a, a, you know, something that is very, very complicated and we're learning a lot about. Uh, so fasten your seatbelts, I'm going to get going here. Now, before I begin my presentation, I do want to uh, let everyone know of, a, of a, just a very sad event, uh, uh, of passing of a, of a friend of Connecticut Children's, uh, who worked at Connecticut Children's for a long time uh, in the Help Me Grow program under Paul Dworkin, and uh, married to, uh, to Fred, uh, dear Fred, uh, who, uh, Bogan, who's uh, one of our longstanding uh, faculty members and pediatricians, uh, retired for a few years. Uh, but but Fred and Joanna have been for you know forever the true members of the Department of Pediatrics and and Connecticut Children's and uh, Joanna passed away this this past week from from metastatic cancer. Uh, she was a dear friend to many of us uh, here at Connecticut Children's. And I'm just going to read a little bit of what Paul Dworkin in his eloquent uh, manner um, uh, wrote uh, as, as a because of the affiliation and friendship with Joanna and Fred. And uh, I'm not going to read the, the whole letter, but I will send a link because it's really beautifully done and it really highlights uh, what Joanna was to, to all of us. And he says, with great sadness, I share my reflections on the passing of our dear friend and beloved colleague, Joanna Bogan. As many of you know, Joanna was the first manager of the Help Me Grow National Center, leading our Help Me Grow dissemination efforts even prior to our evolution into an organized structure. When we were fortunate to secure funding to begin provide technical assistance to jurisdictions that desire to help build me the Help Me Grow program, I conscripted Joanna for her role at the Connecticut Children's Trust Fund, the agency serving as the backbone organization for Help Me Grow in Connecticut. I knew Joanna well from my friendship with her beloved pediatrician husband, Fred, whom we all know, uh, whom I had recruited from New Hampshire to Hartford. In reality, in reality, Fred recruited us. Little did I realize that Fred's hiring would yield such bountiful rewards. In her leadership of our fledgling efforts to offer technical assistance and help me grow implementation, Joanna was critical to our success. Her impeccable interpersonal relationship building skills, her unparalleled capacity for empathy and sensitivity, and her keen ability to carefully listen in an open-minded, non-judgmental manner enabled Joanna to quickly garner the trust and respect of potential collaborators across the nation. Joanna's ability to transform professional relationships to deep personal attachments was legendary, as evidenced by the long list of Help Me Grow affiliate leads who became lifelong friends and confidants. Again, just a snippet of, of who she was. Uh, for those of us who were very lucky enough to have met her through the various times uh, here at Connecticut Children's and in the social events with Fred, it, it's, uh, it's, it's very sad that we no longer have her with us in person, but we have her here with spirit and, and we express our sincere condolences to uh, Fred and his extended family. Uh, please know that we're with you, we care about you, and we will always remember Joanna. So if you can just pause for a minute of silence, I would appreciate it. Thank you. All right, I'm going to begin with uh, some updates. Uh, and again, the, we, we've Connecticut, uh, the health department finally has caught up with the Centers for Disease Control, and uh, we no longer require testing and quarantining after traveling to other states within the U.S. Uh, Connecticut Children's has updated the guidelines for LT members, uh, even those who are fully COVID-19, uh, not, not COVID-19 vaccinated, this little typo here. 
so if you travel domestically, you can return to work without testing, quarantining, as long as you remain without symptoms. Now, you must self-monitor for 14 days. Now, international travel still follows the rules. You have to uh, test and quarantine, and, and the internet has additional information. So, but keep your guard up. Uh, that, you know, I'm going to show you some numbers that I think would be a little bit concerning. So you still have to be careful as you travel and you come back to the state, even if you're vaccinated. You've seen this uh, now for over 13 months. I've been showing you this at either town hall or here at various venues. And uh, this is the 325, 8.28 p.m. If I already changed this morning. Global cases, you can see here, uh, 125 million cases. Uh, that's just a remarkable number of the number of people that have been infected with COVID-19. And that's really, of those who have been tested and counted, it's probably much higher than that. It may be, and some, and some people believe this is close to 200 million people that have been affected, which is getting very close to the worst pandemics in history. You know, frankly, getting into, you know, the half a billion people that, uh, that some, of the, some of the worst ones have taken, uh, taken place many, many years ago. Now, the U.S. Uh, uh, sadly uh, is leading the, the, uh, the charge here with, uh, with 30 million. I'll get back to that in just a minute. But the other number, which is just simply astonishing, is that we are getting close to having lost 3 million people in one year. 3 million people. That's almost the entire population of the state of Connecticut as a result of, uh, of this coronavirus. Uh, so the, the, the numbers are astonishing. And if you look at the right, corner, uh, the right lower-hand corner there, the, uh, that's, a, that's a histogram showing the cases uh, over, over time and, and how those cases have, uh, have uh, increased. We had that initial first wave, uh, then we had uh, the summer months, which had a peak, and then of course that tremendous second wave over the winter months uh, in, the, in the Northern Hemisphere with the, represents Europe and North America uh, and also uh, Central and South America. But what you can also see is the latter part of this is that there's also an increase. Uh, and that's something you've all noticed that over the last month, month and a half, we've had an increase in cases once again. And that probably has a reflection of the, of the variants that are currently circulating, which are far more infectious. And I'll show you a couple of articles about that. Now, this is, uh, this is fascinating. This, you know, this is something that we rarely see. Every disease uh, generally that we talk about uh, generally affects the developing world a lot more. So if you talk about malaria, tuberculosis, HIV, leishmaniasis, anything that is deadly and, and chronic and, and horrific, you know, it's, uh, sadly it always affects the developing world. In this case, uh, the virus has sort of gone in the other direction. And you can see here that the virus uh, affects primarily uh, the, those countries that are more developed, that are uh, wealthier. Uh, and you can see here the Americas and Europe. The Americas in yellow, 54 million over time. And you can see the timeline from April all the way through, uh, through the month of March. And, and th that yellow color, 54 million, with the respective waves uh, is, is really a reflection of the U.S. primarily, which is driving those numbers, 30 million of the 54 of the U.S. Uh, but certainly South America, Brazil are part of that curve there, which is uh, you know, just a tremendous number of cases and deaths. Europe follows closely, although it started there. So you can see there on the left in April, that initial green peak. You remember the, the history about a, a, approximately a year ago, a little bit over a year ago in Italy, how many deaths we had in Italy and, and Spain and France and, and the UK. And then we followed, uh, but it, it has also done the same thing. And, and we kind of trail them just a little bit, but with higher numbers. And you can see that they're also having a resurgence. You've heard about places in, 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 in France, Paris has shut down once again because of the resurgence of COVID-19. Uh, so very, very interesting in how this has affected the developing world. Uh, now, if you look at Africa in, in blue, uh, uh, it's still a lot. Three million is a lot of cases, but certainly pales in comparison to the developing world. Uh, so this is a twist. It's a twist of infectious diseases. We, you know, we will learn about this uh, a lot more. Uh, even in our hemisphere, the, if you look at Haiti, Haiti has had very few cases of COVID-19 uh, and very few deaths. And that's a country that's devastated every time there's a hurricane, there's, there are earthquakes, uh, we have tuberculosis, violence, all kinds of things. This one, for reasons that are still unclear, uh, did not affect the, the island, uh, which is good for them, because otherwise it would have been quite devastating for, for, the, for the poor nation. So they, we'll learn more about this, genetics, 
a lifestyle. Uh, who knows what the, what the issues are, but this is uh, interesting to me. Now, if you look at the worldwide epidemiology, uh, this is from the WHO again, and you can see, you know, this is about a week old, so just a little bit off, but you can see there the, the, the country and the histogram showing the different waves from April all the way through March. Uh, and you can see in the United States, the, on the left there, the, the second wave and a little bit of a resurgence more recently. Uh, Brazil has remained very high and it's now under a, a horrific uh, pandemic with lots of deaths. Um, a lot of this is a reflection of poor management uh, in terms of uh, uh, really highlighting the importance of the disease and the prevention met methods that need to be done. And unfortunately, the government in Brazil has done a very poor job with this. Uh, hopefully they'll get a, a, on, on the right track to help. Uh, India had a very large peak uh, in the in the summer months uh, through September, and then it has decreased a little bit of a resurgence. Uh, a large pop, a large percent of the population has been infected in India, which is very interesting. Now they are rolling out vaccines very quickly. R Russian Federation initially uh, not much, and now they've seen they saw a peak through the winter. It seems to be decreasing. Uh, there's some concern that the numbers there are not real, but again, they've they've had uh, they've also had a problem. The UK, you've all heard about this, and and you see that second wave there. A lot of that was the variant, the B117 that we talked about, that is now here in the U.S. And you can see the numbers for France. Now, um, Italy I had that initial peak with so many deaths. They've had a second peak and now a third resurgence uh, that uh, they're actually shutting down some of the cities in Italy as well, just to give you a sense. Spain, the same thing. Uh, Turkey gives you a sort of an unusual curve. And I've spoken to some of my colleagues that are uh, uh, physicians in Turkey. And, uh, and what I've heard from them is that unfortunately, you know, some of the numbers were not really clearly uh, reported. And so those flat lines initially probably were not real. A lot of this was underreported. Uh, you can see what happened in Germany. Uh, my native country of Colombia uh, has been hit pretty hard with a population of 40 million. There's about 2.4 million cases uh, with lots of deaths. And, and they had a second wave just like we did. And it, there seemed to be in a lower peak right now. Uh, and then in the Southern hemisphere in Argentina that initially had nothing, they really were pretty clean for the, the, the first part of the pandemic, but they've been hit pretty hard now and, and they're coming into the winter months. So hopefully they'll vaccinate quickly. Now in the U.S., 30 million cases, uh, remarkable. You know, who would have thought about this a, a year ago? We were thinking that, you know, perhaps by summer we'd be, we'd be okay, maybe taking masks off. Uh, you know, I was wrong about that. And here, here it is. I mean, this is the... We're not there yet. We're not any even close. We're going to be wearing masks and probably going to be wearing masks for you know for the next uh, eight to twelve months. I mean, I hate to tell you that, but that's just the reality. And you can see the numbers there. And and what's really astonishing is that the, the death number with close getting close to five hundred and fifty thousand. And and as we speak, we have uh, uh, team members who have family members in the ICUs. I know that for a fact. I spoke to one of our team members last night who has a who has a brother in one of our ICUs who's very, very sick. And, and it's a young person, it's in their 40s. So this can happen to anyone. And this is a reminder that we do need to vaccinate each other uh, and, and, and move forward and still follow our social uh, distancing rules and everything that we've talked about for so many, for so many months. You can't give up right now. How about uh, total detected cases? Uh, this is very interesting. This is from the, uh, uh, from the MIT group and, and uh, I love this website. They have a lot of great information. And so predicted cases based on their numbers, uh, and this is pretty accurate actually, as of April 2nd, April 2nd uh, coming up next week in California, 3.6 million cases. That's the highest number of cases. Obviously it's a very populated state. Texas, 2.7 million, Florida, 2 million cases, and Connecticut, actually a lot of people, 300,000. That's, a, you know, for, for a small state, we've, we've actually been hit pretty hard with COVID-19. Now, if you adjust per population, uh, you can see that really, uh, you know, the whole country has been hit hard. Uh, you know, perhaps the Pacific Northwest and, and Maine and Vermont have been the ones that have been spared the most. They're, you know, less populated, perhaps. You have mountain ranges and, uh, and you know, people are more dissipated. But if you look at the rest of the country, there's a lot of cases. The Dakotas were hit hard, if you remember, back in, uh, in the summer and, and early fall with a lot of deaths associated. Uh, and this is adjusted per population. Uh, but you can see where you know which states were hit hard. Uh, the Mid-Atlantic some, somehow a uh, little bit lower, but uh, certainly Connecticut, Rhode Island, New York, New Jersey, pretty pretty hard. 
Now, the, currently, the, these are the active per million. That's another number that is very important because it really tells you where the hotspots are right now. And, and you can see that we are in, in New England, uh, in uh, New York, uh, New Jersey. This is the hotspot right now for the U.S. Uh, so there's no way around it. No, no different than last year around this time. We were the hotspot. So this will migrate as, as it always does. Uh, we are finishing our winter. Uh, coronaviruses tend to have this, this pattern, uh, the normal coronaviruses. And I, I think this new coronavirus is going to begin to follow this pattern as we move along over the next two, three years. And you can see Connecticut at 1,000, almost 2,000 active cases per million. So that's still very high, which means when you go out to the supermarket, even though the, you know, the governor has relaxed a lot of these things, uh, don't lower your guard. You still have to wear your masks. You can gather with a lot of people. If you're not vaccinated, you will have a risk of getting infected. Um, and, and even if you're vaccinated, you still have to follow the recommendations that, that we've talked about. Now, average daily rate per 100,000, John has shown this graph before. Uh, the good news is we're beginning to see some, some, gray, uh, some gray towns uh, up in the Litchfield area, uh, in, the, in the Northeast uh, as well, where you have less than five cases per 100,000. Uh, but notice the metropolitan areas, in the, which is around the Fairfield County, the New Haven, Hartford, still pretty, pretty red, pretty red. So it, it really hasn't changed yet. And you have to be real careful as you travel throughout Connecticut and go into these areas. These are the confirmed cases by date. Uh, and, and this is a reflection of this is from the health department. You can see the two waves in Connecticut uh, a year ago, we were not peaking yet. We peaked around April 14th. And, uh, and in fact, you know, I wanna show you that we, this year, we're actually having the same number, perhaps even a higher number of cases than last late winter, early spring. So, you know, we were being really careful back then. You know, people were not moving around. The highways were basically empty. It's no different right now. We have the same number of cases. So don't lower your guard, please. This is really, really important. I cannot emphasize that enough. Uh, you saw the first wave, you saw the terrific, horrific uh, second wave and, and we're in what we call the, a, a ripple or a small wave now in the, in the months of April and hopefully that will begin to change. Now, uh, these are the total number of cases by age. Uh, people still say, well, it doesn't affect children. Well, it actually does. Uh, it affects children in a, in a major way. And you can see of the 300,000 cases in Connecticut, almost 51,000 have been diagnosed in kids under the age of 19. Uh, 17,000 in kids under the age of nine. Now, the good news is that not all of them have, have developed severe disease, but but guess what? They, uh, some of them will develop some of the long-term complications, which will be uh, something that we'll, we'll touch upon in the next part of the presentation, uh, where we will talk about the long-haul syndrome. And we are beginning to understand what that means. And even some kids with mild, moderate disease may develop some issues. And I'm beginning to wonder, like some of my colleagues, whether the, the behavioral health peak uh, it, that we have seen is related to a, a very direct effect of COVID-19 in the central nervous system. So again, these are the numbers from Connecticut. Uh, these are the patients hospitalized by, by date. Uh, we had many in the first part. And again, if you remember that, that really affected our, our elderly population. Many were in nursing homes, many died, and, and they ended up in the hospital with very severe disease. But the, the winter months were terrible. We had a lot of people in the hospital. And then we're seeing a resurgence, a little bit of a peak. Uh, here at Connecticut Children's, we had a quiet time during the you know, perhaps late February, early March, and we're seeing more cases now coming in. I've, you know, this is uh, very typical of a, of a wave effect as people are coming in with COVID-19. And I think one of, the, one of the differences this time around is we're seeing younger people with COVID-19. But I wanna give you good news as well. COVID-19, this is from the uh, University of Washington uh, uh, website where they do fantastic work with analytics as well. You can see there on the left, August 2nd, 281 cases, uh, predicted estimated new cases, that's per day. You see the second wave around right past Thanksgiving and to Christmas, New Year's. And then the third uh, the ripple, which we're seeing right now, and it's right now about, I think the, the state reported 1,500 cases yesterday, which is aligned with what the, the analytics say about 9,000 cases per day. Now, if we vaccinate, continue to do what we're doing, summer months come, and hopefully this is correct, that by June we'll have 20 cases per day. That would have been the lowest since, uh, since last year when this whole thing began. So we're hopeful that we're going in the right direction. 
Uh, deaths, uh, very high numbers in, in, the, in the middle of uh, around Christmas time, New Year's, uh, and, and you can see there, the number there, 7,862 Connecticut residents who have died as a result of COVID-19. And, and, and we're just beginning to get the impact of the morbidity, people who survive this and, and what are the issues related to them. And you'll hear a little bit more about this uh, in the second part of the presentation. Now, by June 30th, if we do things correctly, we should be able to really eliminate uh, any deaths associated to COVID-19. Vaccination will have a big role to play there. This is the other statistic, which is really, uh, you know, something to, to pause about. And, and it's the, this is the crude death rate by race and ethnicity. And, and this is, uh, right, you can see here, this has really affected in a, in a major way. It's affected everyone, no question about it, but Hispanics, and non-Hispanic Blacks have been affected mostly. Uh, and that's a reflection of our health disparities uh, and, and our cities, our big cities. And uh, this has really affected um, my fellow Latinos uh, in a way that, that has been uh, just tremendous with a lot of morbidity, a lot of mortality. This should give us a pause and make us think about how we handle healthcare moving forward as healthcare disparities play a big role in any disease. So uh, this is a quote from John, uh, the pandemic marathon is now the race to vaccinate. So thank you, John, for giving me some of these slides. Uh, he, I asked him that before he left, he managed to give me a, a few slides, which I'm gonna share with you. Um, this one is from the, the, uh, the Washington Post, which gives a really good information uh, about each state. Uh, the good news for Connecticut is that 31.7% have received at least one dose and uh, Connecticut has administered 1.13% million doses uh, for people, covering 38.6% of the eligible population of 16 and older and 31.7% of the state's entire population, and almost 600,000 have been fully vaccinated. Really good job here, Connecticut. Now, we will be uh, starting, and uh, there's, a, there's a, a mistake here, it's April 5th. Uh, here in Connecticut, uh, Connecticut Children's will be focusing specifically on kids that have uh, over the age of 16 that have underlying conditions that make them at a very high risk of either disease or very high risk of not being able to get to their normal facilities to get the care they need. Uh, so, so we have uh, been allocated uh, almost 4,000 doses of the vaccine uh, starting on April, uh, April 1st, which is when the state actually begins to vaccinate everyone, but we'll begin our vaccination on April 5th. So this is a misnomer, not April 2nd. And, and soon we'll be reaching out to our patients with an email and a telephone call. Uh, uh, Chris Grindle and Lori Pelletier and, and many other people working in the task force have really done a great job of identifying uh, those individuals that, uh, that are at risk. And we will be allowing them to, to, through EPIC, this will be not through the VAM system, through the EPIC system, they'll be able to uh, get an email and then self-register to come in for vaccination, which will get them ahead of the line so they don't have to wait till July and August as the, everyone gets in line to be vaccinated. Uh, so there's some, uh, you can go into the internet and, and find out a little bit more about this. And if you have patients that perhaps we didn't reach out to, please let us know. They have to be of specific conditions. And this, these are the disorders, obesity, this is morbid obesity, medical complexity, genetic disorders, neurologic disorders, some metabolic disorders, uh, including sickle cell disease, significant congenital heart disease, poorly controlled diabetes, chronic kidney disease, severe asthma and immunosuppression due to chemotherapy and other conditions. The list is about 6,000 people for us. Uh, we're we're going to be able to vaccinate about 4,000 and hopefully with vaccine becomes available, we'll vaccinate many more. A few articles and then I'll finish up and pass it on. Um, the, the question that has come up is, um, what about protection against reinfection among 4 million people in Denmark who had prior infection? So the question is, does natural infection protect against reinfection? I get that question asked quite a bit. And which age group was likely to be reinfected? This is not vaccine. This is actual infection. And very interesting, what you can see here, this is a complicated table, but in Denmark, uh, older than 65, much more likely to be reinfected compared to younger age groups. The estimated protection from first infection was 47%, which I thought would be higher. It's not that high. Uh, so if you're, uh, now it's much better if you are younger, uh, under the age of 64, uh, certainly it's uh, close to 80%, but over 65 with uh, natural infection, uh, protection is 50%. Uh, and this is why we do recommend that if somebody has gotten infected, that they go ahead and get vaccinated 90 days after the infection. I think this is data that really supports the importance of vaccination. 
a lot of uh, a lot of information about B117. And here in Connecticut, it's considered that maybe 50% of our strains are now B117. And as you've heard before from John, uh, this virus has a, a greater capacity to dis- disseminate from people to people. This is why the UK had a a, a wave uh, in the in the in the in the winter months, and it's, it's here now. And we believe that the, the the wave here in Connecticut and in the Northeast is very much related to the appearance of B117, which is anywhere between 30 and 50% of the strains. But the other piece which is concerning is that B117 is not just more likely to be passed on, but it appears to have increased mortality in community-tested cases. So this is a great paper in Nature that is, uh, it's only in the preview phase, in the accelerator article preview. Uh, and there are just two things I'm gonna show you here. There on the left, you can see in the, in the uh, dark, in the, in the light, uh, I think that's red or orange, who knows what color that is. But it's, uh, you can see the, uh, the SGTF, the, those, that's the B117. And, and you can see the specimen date uh, from November to February. You can see the number of samples. Uh, and, and you can see that the, the majority of these samples became B117. And then you can see the deaths associated uh, with B117, much higher than with the, 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 the classic strain, which is the non-SGTF. And on the right, you see a Kaplan-Meier curve. Uh, and and th- those go from left to right over time. And it's the estimated survival. And, and you can see the, the lighter blue has a better survival than the, than the darker color. Uh, and that's significant. And what they concluded, that there, there's a 61% higher hazard of death with B117. And we need to try to understand why that is. Uh, so again, it's a, this is why we need to vaccinate quickly. Uh, the other one is uh, very important that the monoclonal antibodies that we have, uh, and you know, we've been using a number of them here at Connecticut Children's, uh, that the, the variants, uh, these variants, uh, uh, especially this P1 and B1351 variant, may escape the commercially available monoclonal antibodies. Um, and again, this is a figure that I borrowed from John, uh, and, and it, it's, it's a neutralizing an- antibody, which is showing, uh, it's a complex figure, but that you can see on the top there, uh, each one of those is a different monoclonal, uh, CASI, MD, and Regeneron CoV-2, uh, and, it, and that's the last one is a combination of, of two. Uh, and you can see that in at least the top ones, they still work for this variant. But if you go in the bottom part, uh, you can see there's a difference between the top curves and the lower curves. And the lower curves, that, which are in red and, and blue, are the variants, uh, B1351 and P1, and it doesn't work for them. Now, it still works for the B117. So what we have done here at Connecticut Children's is that we now have uh, gotten away from our monoclonal single therapy, and we've actually moved on, and we have a clinical pathway that Grace Hong and, and the team have done, where we actually use a combination of CASI and MD. Uh, so if you're coming in for neutralizing antibody, we use a cocktail, which seems to be very effective. Now, the good news is that the uh, mRNA vaccines are still active against the variants. Uh, so despite the reduction in anti-B1351 spike protein titers, uh, in this case, in Moderna, uh, the immunization yields neutralizing antibodies that still provide protection. So that's, uh, that's another reason why you need to get vaccinated as quickly as you can. So uh, this is from John. He always wants to put a movie in at the end. And uh, so are we done yet? Uh, the answer is not yet, but soon. I think June looks good. Uh, this virus does throw curves at us. And so we may go in a different direction. But uh, I, I think uh, hang in there. You got to take care, uh, you know, follow careful instructions as we've actually talked about, and, and I think we'll get in, uh, in the right direction. So I'll finish with that and I'll take questions at the end. I'm gonna pass it on now to Dr. Lauren Ferrante, uh, who's an assistant professor of medicine in the section of pulmonary critical care and sleep medicine in the Department of Internal Medicine at Yale. Uh, she's incredibly well-trained and they have a real life experience with long haul syndrome, especially those individuals that are in critical care and then leave the critical care unit. And she's been working on this for many years. So I appreciate that Lauren was willing to, uh, to join us today and give you uh, some real life experience for adults who've had COVID and what we may be seeing in kids as the pandemic goes on. So Lauren, go ahead and I'll give you the podium now. Thank you so much, Dr. Salazar. And thank you everyone for having me today. I'm really excited to be here. And I think this is a great forum. So um, as Dr. Salazar mentioned, I'm on the faculty at Yale and I'm an adult intensivist. So I'm adult pulmonary and critical care. Most of my practice is in the medical intensive care unit, taking care of adult patients, uh, many of whom have been critically ill with COVID over the last year. 
Um, but I'm also one of the faculty who staff our post-COVID recovery program. And there were three of us who initially started staffing it, uh, well, I guess about nine months ago now and have continued to follow patients there. So I'll be talking to you about that today. I have no conflicts of interest to disclose. As Dr. Salazar mentioned, I'm a physician scientist. So I have a research program focused on long-term outcomes after critical illness. Um, and that's, uh, I have no conflicts of interest to disclose, but that work is funded um, by the NIH and the Pepper Center and my funding is listed here. So the objectives of today's talk are threefold. So first I want to briefly review the published literature describing patients with long-term symptoms after COVID-19 infection. Second, I'd like to present some early data from our own recovery program, as I thought that may be of interest to you since it's a Connecticut-based program, uh, describing our patient population and their burden of symptoms. And finally, I just want to briefly touch on some outstanding questions about um, what we're seeing, because as you can imagine, the more we see, uh, this has raised more questions um, as time has gone on. So I know that you already saw some of this data, but what I did want to highlight is that although we've heard a lot about, um, you know, the deaths related to COVID-19 and that's, you know, the, as the numbers rise, it's just terrible. But, but what we want to also highlight, especially in the context of this talk, is that most people do survive. And here in Connecticut, you can see um, that uh, on the left, this is the cumulative number of COVID cases by town. Um, and to date, as of March 2021, we have over 285,000 COVID survivors living in Connecticut. Uh, the reason I included the data, the graph on the right, is to show that this number is likely to increase because, as you can see, most towns in Connecticut um, are still have more than 15 or more cases per 100,000. So we're likely to see, unfortunately, more deaths and also more survivors, many of whom could be suffering from the long haul syndrome. And so in the interest of time, I decided to briefly highlight one of the most recent um, and best designed studies focusing on long haul or actually just long-term symptoms after COVID-19 infection. Um, so this was just published in JAMA um, recently within the last few weeks. And this is pro many of the, published, of the published studies that exist on long haul syndrome are either convenience samples um, or you know, smaller observational studies. Um, but the reason we, I liked this study and, and Gemma did too, is because uh, this study group enrolled 834 adult survivors of a COVID-19 infection um, between March and May in France and started following them from that time point. So it wasn't a convenient sample of people who, um, you know, who were seeking medical attention after their hospitalization. They tried to follow everybody. Um, and 478 underwent a telephone assessment four months after discharge to ascertain respiratory, cognitive, and functional systems, symptoms. And then those who had symptoms and all who had survived a critical illness due to COVID were invited to come in for an ambulatory care visit. So 294 were invited, 177 were seen. And if, of course, they have a flow chart in the article if you're interested in the reason for exclusions. In the interest of time, I can't dive into that right now. I wanted to share with you this table of results. So among the 478 who were assessed, you can see that the majority were not intubated. Um, and in keeping with their study design, the time from hospital discharge to the telephone assessment was a little over 100 days after discharge. And there were a wide range of declared symptoms in the patients that they spoke with. Um, and you could see that they also performed cognitive testing. And what I wanted to highlight here is that these two symptoms uh, existed with the greatest prevalence in this cohort, fatigue and memory difficulty. Um, although other symptoms were highly prevalent, such as dyspnea, as you can imagine. Um, and of course, dyspnea, the prevalence is much higher in the intubated patients. And I wanted to highlight fatigue and memory difficulty because as you'll see shortly, this is also what we're seeing in our patient population here in the US. Uh, they had this very nice uh, chart here where you can see the pink circle represents those who had cognitive impairment, green is dysfunctional breathing, yellow fibrotic lesions, blue psychiatric symptoms, and gray no symptoms reported. And they presented the data in this way so that you can see that most people had more than one uh, symptom. It wasn't just having one isolated symptom and then continuing on. And as you'll see shortly, that's also what we're seeing. 
Um, I'm a pulmonologist in addition to an intensivist. So of course we are, have been interested in whether um, those who have survived COVID-19 infection may end up with lung fibrosis um, or other long-term pulmonary consequences. And this group was, was interested in the same. And so in this article, they talk about how about two thirds continue to have CT abnormalities um, at the four month follow-up, mainly subtle ground glass opacities, which is also what we're seeing. And I will show you a CAT scan in, um, in a few slides uh, to show you what that looks like. Fibrotic lesions have actually been much less common than we initially thought. Um, they, this group found it in about 19% of patients um, and not involving much of the parenchyma. Of course, patients who had ARDS, um, during their hospitalization, we're more likely to have uh, fibrosis afterwards, and that's consistent even with what we see in the non-COVID ARDS population. Um, but lastly, I wanted to highlight um, this observation that they made about the SF36 score. So the SF36 is a quality of life instrument, and there's a score that you can make for the physical subscale, which represents difficulty performing activities. And the median score at four months after COVID-19 hospitalization was 25 on a scale of zero, which represents the worst possible um, range of the scale up to 100. Uh, and that's, that's really pretty poor. So pivoting over to our program now, um, we published this clinic blueprint in CHEST. It came out online in the fall and is, is now uh, just, I think was published earlier this month. Um, and we call our program the Post-COVID Recovery Program at Yale, which is, of course, you can see recovery is an acronym. Um, and this was the conceptual model that we used when we were planning the clinic. The clinic, our um, Winchester Chest Clinic Director is Jennifer Posick and the clinical lead is Denise Lechman saying, and Jennifer, Denise, and I originally started seeing patients in this program in June. Um, we've since added additional um, attendings to the program because it's grown so quickly. Um, and the way this works, you know, the one thing I'll say is we initially thought we would have to conduct the first visit over telehealth, but quickly realized that that was not uh, really going to work because we needed to get PFTs and a physical therapy evaluation um, on patients at their initial assessment. So even in the summer, we were seeing patients face to face because they get pulmonary function testing before seeing us, they were getting COVID swabs since that's an aerosol generating procedure. And so the initial assessment's really a combination of what you're seeing here that's listed as visit one and visit two, where patients come in and they have full PFTs, then they see a physician, and then they have a full phys physical therapy assessment. Uh, the clinic is then a hub and spoke model where if we, you know, as we identify which specialty referrals they need, we can then refer them to our post-COVID partners in that specialty. So as an example, the post-COVID neurology program is quite large now, um, and we refer to them frequently. Other common referrals include cardiology. There's a post-COVID cardiology program now, and then we have partners in many other specialties as well. So here are some early, early data from the recovery uh, clinic pilot cohort. Um, we're calling it the pilot just because it's the for, you know, essentially the first 37 patients who were seen. So this represents a very early group. Um, we have some, there are some people who are working on abstracting these data into REDCap. So there's a bit of a delay as, as the project had to be approved first. Um, and so the one thing I'll say is, you know, the very early group was largely non-hospitalized because um, the other patients were still in the hospital and they would go home recover and, and see us a bit later. Um, so the mean age, as you can see, is about 52 years with a, a wide range, um, and most people are from home. Uh, the comorbidities that we're seeing are those that you might expect, so hypertension, diabetes. I think being a pulmonary clinic, you know, many of our, maybe many patients with asthma just sought us out. Um, but overall, not a very multimorbid population. You can see the percent with the said comorbidity is actually still fairly low. Um, at least for the adult population. I, of course, I'm sure children are different. Um, and this is something that really stood out to us and a reason that we're continuing to gather data from our program. And we hope to see more data from other post-COVID programs. You know, the studies, cohort studies of hospitalized patients are of course capturing a hospitalized population. 
What we're noticing and what many post-COVID programs in the country are noticing is that the patients who are seeking out care for the long haul syndrome were not necessarily hospitalized. In fact, the majority of them were not hospitalized during their acute illness. Um, and then among those who were hospitalized, only a, a smaller fraction of them were on mechanical ventilation. Many were on nasal cannula or high flow. Um, and I ex actually expect the nasal cannula and high flow proportions to increase as we moved away from uh, intubating people early. So very early in the first search, there was a movement towards intubating people fairly early, um, but now we've realized that that's not something that, that we have to do. And so mo many of our patients are actually on high flow in the ICU and, and nasal cannula on the floor. In terms of what we're seeing in our clinic for post-COVID symptoms, these are some of those that were captured in this early cohort um, with the highest prevalence. And I wanted to highlight that we're seeing a, a lot of dyspnea, a very high prevalence of fatigue, um, cognitive changes and mood changes. And so because of these cognitive changes, this is the reason that the post-COVID neurology program has grown, grown so quickly. Um, and we're very grateful to them for their partnership. Um, the dyspnea and the fatigue do not always run together. So I'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. Um, we're capturing the Promise Global Health and the MMRC on everybody who comes in. Um, and here you can see the range of scores for the Promise Global along with the subdomains of physical health, neurocognitive health, and social health. Here you can see the um, range of scores for MMRC. So this is a dyspnea scale. And I've included the, uh, what, what each level means here at the top for your reference. Um, and I just want to highlight that, you know, having an MMRC, uh, you could imagine, so if you're a fairly young functional person to now have an MMRC of two, uh, which is about a third of our patients after COVID, you know, they're walking slower than people of the same age, or they have to stop for breath when walking on level ground. That's, that's a pretty profound symptom to be suffering from. And then of course, grades three and four are much worse. In terms of objective measures, we found, and again, this is a bit different than the other cohort because we tended to see people, uh, I would say about a month after their hospital stay on average. Um, but many of our patients had an abnormal CT as was found in the JAMA study. Most commonly we're seeing multi-lobar ground glass. Um, and I can share with you that, you know, the ground glass that we're seeing with I'm showing you some examples on the right. Um, it will be there for a few months after COVID-19 infection, and sometimes it persists uh, for several months out. Um, and, you know, it's hard to know exactly what that represents, lingering inflammation, why does it resolve sooner in some patients than others. Um, but we're mostly seeing ground glass, uh, much less evidence of fibrosis. Um, and here, you know, we've said that anecdotally, a small number of patients have residual fibrosis. That's been our experience. We have not seen too much fibrosis. Most of the fibrosis I've seen in my patients uh, was in patients who either had pre-existing ILD or were intubated for a prolonged period of time and with severe ARDS when they had COVID. And the other thing that struck us was that even if patients came to us with CT abnormalities and dyspnea, they very often had normal PFTs. Um, so that was a very surprising uh, finding for us. As time has gone on, we've found some PFT abnormalities here and there. Um, for example, many people, it's almost that they have an unmasking or recrudescence of airway disease that they previously had in life. So they may need to be on some inhalers. Some people may have mild reductions in total lung capacity, um, but it, all in all, most people have had normal PFTs. Um, and again, I, so I just wanted to highlight, so my, my area of uh, research is long-term outcomes after the ICU. And there is, for those of you who practice in the ICU, you may be familiar with the term PICS or the post-intensive care syndrome. This is something that's been uh, described for quite a long time at this point. The, the, the term was coined in 2012, but the concept has existed for much longer in, in addition to the field of research. And you can see that the three domains um, that are described in the post-IC syndrome are physical, cognitive impairment, and mental health impairment. Um, and as I've highlighted here on the left with one of my own patients, um, you know, three months after COVID infection, and she was in our ICU, she's still on oxygen with persistent dyspnea, 
impaired functioning, uh, word finding difficulty, anxiety, and flashbacks. And so she meets all three domains of the post-ICU syndrome. And so for some of our patients, there is this overlap between post-COVID symptoms and PICS. But I think we all know that uh, the long haul syndrome is unique. There really seems to be something unique about this virus. Um, and so there's a lot of ongoing work looking into the pathophysiology of some of these unique manifestations. There are investigators in our post-COVID neurology program um, who are working on something called the MIND study where they gather CSF in many of these patients in addition to imaging and a battery of other tests. And some early findings suggest that there may be antibodies against brain tissue um, in long haul COVID patients who have neurologic symptoms. Uh, and so I think they actually have a study in press on that currently. We've also seen a, a lot of patients with autonomic dysfunction um, most commonly, it's dysautonomia, just, you know, very uh, heart rate variability and other um, symptoms related to autonomic dysfunction. But we, I also have, I and others, we have patients who, after COVID, developed postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, or POTS, um, where it's very difficult for them to be upright for a long period of time, um, or they get become orthostatic. And so for those patients, we have had to develop um, a dedicated rehabilitation program that leverages supine exercise, gradually progressing to upright. And there is a large body of existing literature already on how to rehabilitate POTS patients. And so we've applied that to our own patient pool. Um, more recently, there have been some anecdotal reports and a small 44-person study out of Europe suggesting that the COVID vaccine may dramatically improve long-haul symptoms. I have not seen any um, rigorous studies conducted that address this question, uh, nor have I really had many patients report this to me, but I think this is something on our radar that we'll be interested to hear more about in the coming months. And then lastly, you know, whether long-term outcomes differ in various patient populations is an area of interest, I think, for many of us. And just to highlight, you know, one of the um, data points that Dr. Salazar mentioned earlier was how COVID had early on disproportionately affected older adults. And if you look at the CDC data tracker, you can, you can see that although we know that uh, older adults early in the pandemic um, were disproportionately affected, the truth is that even, even despite that, most older adults do survive. Um, and as somebody who I conduct, uh, my post-ICU program is actually focused on older adults. I conduct aging-focused research. I and other colleagues of mine, we were interested in whether COVID-19 and older adults, um, whether the uh, burden of functional uh, cognitive um, and symptom burden after COVID among older adults who were hospitalized, um, whether that would be different um, and also what those symptoms would look like. Because early on in the pandemic, everybody was talking about how older adults um, were more likely to die, but nobody was thinking about what their long-term symptoms might be. And as you all know, there are many aspects of a COVID hospital hospitalization that are uniquely, um, that may be more harmful for older adults such as um, social isolation, uh, the polypharmacy that we all saw, especially with medication shortages early on, we had to use more benzos. Um, there were many, many immobility, uh, patients are confined to their room, they're not allowed to have family. And so in addition to this new disease, um, we felt that the COVID wards themselves created this perfect storm. And so we applied for um, funding from NIA and, and this study was funded. This is called the Valiant Study. And so we've designed this very much like the JAMA study that you just saw. Um, we submitted this grant um, almost a year ago at this point, it was, it was funded. We've been enrolling since last June and really picked up enrollment in September when, after the funding arrived in August. And so we're enrolling 500 participants age 60 and older who were hospitalized with COVID across the Yale New Haven health system. Um, we are enrolling English and Spanish speaking participants. We have Spanish speaking members on our research team because we wanted to make sure we were capturing all of the important groups in our population. And uh, patients undergo a battery of assessments while they're in the hospital. It's all done remotely, capturing their baseline functional status, baseline cognitive status, um, social support, 
mental health and it's a very comprehensive assessment. And then we repeat the assessment at one, three and six months after um, discharge from the hospital. And we link to the EMR data so we can pull in all of the data points from their hospitalization. Oh, um, sorry. Okay. Um, and so in conclusion, uh, because I know that we're up against the hour, um, I just wanted to reiterate that first, uh, we are seeing a wide range of symptoms that may persist after COVID-19 infection. And among the most common complaints, we're seeing fatigue, memory difficulty, and dyspnea, and that's what's being reported in the published literature. Um, our early data from our recovery program at Yale predominantly uh, includes uh, patients who were not hospitalized, but nonetheless, we're still seeing fatigue, dyspnea, mood changes, and cognitive changes most commonly. And then finally, uh, ongoing research is exploring the pathophysiology of these post-acute sequelae, as well as long-term outcomes in various patient populations. And actually NIH, uh, as many of you may know, recently re um, released ROAs that will be studying some of these questions um, across the country in multi-center cohorts. And so we really look forward to the data that arise from those collaborations. With that, I will say thank you. This is our program. Um, it started small and had to grow very quickly because of the large number of patients seeking care. Um, again, I wanna highlight my colleagues, uh, so Jennifer Posick and Denise Sletchman Singh, who lead our program along with our uh, other faculty who have since joined our group in seeing these patients. Um, and I'm happy to take any questions. There's some pictures from, from the spring surge. Thank you, Lauren. That was uh, outstanding. And it just highlights the, the importance of doing the, the, the clinical studies for this virus that continues to uh, surprise us and teach us you know, some, uh, some really fascinating things, uh, including this, the long-term consequences of COVID-19. We, we recently, uh, as of last, in fact, this past Tuesday, submitted a very large grant application uh, looking at uh, studying the, the long-term effects in children and, and adolescents, which has been grossly understudied. Uh, and, and there are many kids that have been infected, so we'll find out more. So Anna Maria, I think you're gonna run the questions and yeah. go ahead. Good morning, everyone, and happy Friday. Thank you for your questions, and uh, thank you, Dr. Ferranti, for that great talk. So we'll start with a few for Dr. Salazar. Um, the first is from Dr. Zonoritis, um, who asks, um, should cases, hospitalizations, and deaths be reported as normalized versus testing done? Uh, reported as, I'm sorry, didn't get the... Normalized versus testing done. Um, and I think either, either way, I think the importance is that we, we need to... Uh, report them as a positive test that shows us COVID-19 positivity. Now, some of them, some of them, unfortunately, will be re repetitive tests because you know kids may go for more than one test. Um, but it does give you a sense of of how many kids are actually diagnosed with COVID-19. And I think based on uh, and what Dr. Ferranti just presented, it is very important for us to know of those kids who tested positive how many actually develop problems. For instance, CHC Inc., Community Health Center Inc., they have tested over 75,000 kids uh, through their uh, drive-through or, or walk-up facilities. Uh, 9,000 kids have tested positive. And I want to know what happens to those 9,000 9, kids over time. Uh, are those, in terms of the long-term effects, are those 9,000 going to develop, in some cases, uh, neuropsychiatric, neurobehavioral disorders? And we need to understand why. So I think that to me, I think tested is, is ideal. Uh, is that a true reflection of the actual number of cases? Perhaps not. Great. Thank you, Dr. Salazar. Also, will we be able to vaccinate high-risk high patients who are currently hospitalized if they are having a prolonged hospitalization? Uh, yeah, I think that's from Dr. Skirk is that question. And uh, uh, we, can, uh, we can touch base offline, but uh, if uh, the, the answer is yes. If one of those children that is in the hospital is recognized through our slicer and dicer and uh, meets criteria, and, and most likely they would be if they prolong, have prolonged hospitalization, then uh, that child can be vaccinated and we will make sure we prioritize that. So give us the names and we'll help you with that. And along the lines of um, hi, uh, children at high risk, are there any particular population of children that place them more at risk for COVID infection? That's a great question. And so we, we have seen uh, in our ICU many kids who have very high BMIs. Uh, so uh, morbid obesity actually does put them at higher risk. 
Um, surprisingly, what we haven't seen is all the kids who are immunocompromised coming in with COVID-19. Now, that, that may be a, a not correct in the sense because many of them are more secluded at home. So, in fact, many of the immune deficiency patients that we follow in infectious disease immunology have had the best year of their lives in terms of infectious disease. Why? Because they're, everyone's wearing a mask, they're less exposed to viruses, um, even the COVID virus, uh, and, and therefore they haven't been as sick as in, in other years. Uh, so, so the answer is, it's a mixed bag. You know, some of the kids that we would think would have more severe disease haven't had more severe disease. But what's really, really important is that one of the reasons for vaccinating is that many of these kids have not been able to go back to their normal life activities, which are so critical for them for development, for going back to school, going to their social gatherings uh, with, you know, with, with other kids. Uh, so vaccination actually is a lifeline for their neurocognitive issues as opposed to even getting the disease itself. Thank you. And one more, Dr. Salazar. What is the Connecticut state requirement for fully vaccinated healthcare workers after international travel, non-recreational, non regarding quarantine and testing at this time? Yeah, great question. So that hasn't changed yet. Even if you're vaccinated uh, for international travel, you still have to get tested when you come back. And for Connecticut children, if you travel outside and you get tested, testing will get you back into the building. Uh, for, for local national travel, you don't need to be tested or quarantined anymore. So that hasn't changed yet. It may change over time. And, uh, you know, uh, the CDC hasn't changed that recommendation. The health department hasn't either. So if you travel internationally, we still need to test you. Great. Uh, a question for Dr. Ferranti. Approximately what fraction of COVID patients developed the long-term chronic symptoms based on your observations so far? Thank you. That's a great question. So that question is probably best answered with data from our Valiant cohort, the study that I described. At, um, and actually earlier, that's why I paused because I thought I put in some of our, uh, one of the slides from our early data. So at this point, we've enrolled 257 participants and we had one month outcomes on 179 and, and some of the longer term out, um, symptom data. And when I look across uh, what we're seeing in terms of symptoms by time, actually so far every, every single patient in our cohort has reported at least one symptom. Um, and so again, we enroll people in the hospital and follow them out. Uh, as you can imagine in our post-COVID clinic, everybody who comes to see us has symptoms because that's why they're seeking us out. Um, so that's why I'm highlighting the data from our study in older adults. So far, everyone has had at least one symptom. But as you saw in the JAMA study, when you look at a broad swath of the adult population, it, it is a, a, a smaller proportion. Thank you, Dr. Ferranti. Also, we have a participant who asked, um, I, um, I'll, I'll read the quote. I was diagnosed with uh, POTS back in 2012. Almost all of my symptoms had gone into remission by 2018. I recently had COVID-19 between my first and second vaccine doses and definitely feel many of my pot symptoms have resurfaced. I would, would I benefit from your program and how would I get in touch? Yes, I think so. Um, so, so what you can do is we, if you, so the number for the Winchester Chess Clinic is 7823-785-4198. But if you look online, you can find all of the details about the program. Also, our entire clinic is moving to a new building in North Haven at the end of the month. So that phone number will change. I can reach out and provide that um, to you afterwards via email so that anyone has it who's interested. So you can come make an appointment with us if we're, if POTS is really the predominant symptom, then we would end up uh, plugging you in with our post-COVID cardiology partners. And that program is being led by Erica Spatz um, in Yale Cardiology. And so your options would either be to see her directly or to come see us first, undergo that comprehensive evaluation that I mentioned, and then we'll coordinate your care with the post-COVID cardiology program and, and follow you going forward. Thank you. And we can post that information um, on our site as well. Um, one last question for you, Dr. Ferranti. Can you speak to the duration of the loss of smell and taste that people are experiencing? Sure. So that is a really great question. Um, what we have noticed in our cohort and in other cohorts is that that symptom may be most prevalent in the month after discharge. 
um, and looking at the data that I have on my on my screen that I, I, know, I know you can't all see it right now, nearly half, uh, about 40% still have loss of smell, nearly half still have loss of taste, but that really does seem to dramatically decline over time. And I can share that that is also what I'm seeing in our post-COVID program. Patients may come in and early on complain of that, but that does tend to improve in the majority with time. Um, and it's the other neurologic manifestations that may persist, such as cognitive, um, cognitive difficulty. Thank you so much. And just one uh, statement from Dr. Jocelyn, who says Governor, Governor Lamont has announced yesterday that the eligibility for 16 plus um, uh, um, individuals have, has moved up to April 1st. This is not an April Fool's joke. So on that note. Uh, Dr. Frant, a great presentation. Thank you to all of, all of you, 232, for joining today. This series continues to be popular. We won't be here uh, next uh, this coming Friday. It's Good Friday, but we'll come back right after that with Dr. Shriver after he comes back from visiting his grandchildren. And you can send him an email, and, and maybe he can send pictures with the grandchildren. Uh, Well-deserved uh, break for him. So, again, thank you for joining us. We'll see you on Tuesday for Grand Rounds. Dr. Ferrante, thank you very much. Uh, have a safe, good weekend. Bye-bye.